This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of ankle sprain from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Ankle sprains are very common twisting injuries to the ankle that are the most common reason for missed athletic participation. Diagnosis can be made clinically with swelling and ecchymosis of the ankle and pain with range of motion. Radiographs are only indicated when clinical examination meets criteria, specifically the Ottawa ankle rules. Treatment usually includes a brief period of immobilization followed by early functional physical therapy. Rarely, operative management is indicated in the setting of syndesmosis injury with tibiofibular diastasis or chronic ankle instability with recurrent sprains. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to the epidemiology of ankle sprains, as far as incidence, ankle sprains are the most common reason for missed athletic participation. As far as demographics, this is the most common injury in dancers. Risk factors can be patient-related or environmental-related. Patient-related risk factors include limited dorsiflexion, decreased proprioception, and or balance deficiency. Environmentally-related risk factors include indoor court sports, which have the highest risk, for example, basketball and volleyball. Moving on to the etiology of ankle sprains, the pathophysiology and mechanism of injury involves an inversion-type ankle injury on a plantar flex foot. And remember that recurrent ankle sprains can lead to functional instability. Ankle sprains can consist of a high ankle sprain or a low ankle sprain. A high ankle sprain involves a syndesmosis injury and makes up 1-10% to of all ankle sprains. Low ankle sprains, which we'll focus on in this episode, include an ATFL and CFL injury and make up greater than 90% of all ankle sprains. Associated injuries-slash-conditions include osteochondral defects, peroneal tendon injuries, subtle cavovarus foot, and a deltoid ligament injury. However, know that an isolated deltoid ligament injury is very rare. Know that the superficial deltoid limits talar abduction, while the deep deltoid limits external rotation. Know that deltoid ligament injuries are initially treated conservatively, but may require reconstruction if the patient continues to have instability. Other associated injuries slash conditions with ankle sprains include complex regional pain syndrome and fractures, specifically of the fifth metatarsal base, the anterior process of the calcaneus, as well as the lateral or posterior process of the talus. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. So the anterior talofibular ligament, or ATFL, is the most commonly involved ligament in low ankle sprains. The mechanism is plantar flexion and inversion. Physical exam shows drawer laxity in plantar flexion. The calcaneofibular ligament, or CFL, is the second most common ligament injury in lateral ankle sprains. The mechanism is dorsiflexion and inversion. Physical exam shows drawer laxity in dorsiflexion. Note that subtalar instability can be difficult to differentiate from posterior ankle instability because the CFL contributes to both. Finally, the posterior talofibular ligament, or PTFL, is less commonly involved in the setting of ankle sprains. Now, let's go over the classification of low ankle sprains, which can be divided into three grades. Grade 1 will have no ligament disruption, will have minimal ecchymosis and swelling, and will typically have no pain with weight-bearing. Grade 2 corresponds to a stretch without tear in terms of ligament disruption, will have moderate ecchymosis and swelling, and may have mild pain with weight-bearing. Grade 3 ankle sprains will correspond to a complete tear in terms of ligament disruption, will have severe ecchymosis and swelling, and severe pain with weight-bearing. Moving on to the presentation of ankle sprains, symptoms include pain with weight-bearing as patients may or may not be able to bear weight, they will have swelling and ecchymosis, recurrent instability, as well as a catching or popping sensation that may occur following recurrent sprains. Physical exam involves focal tenderness and swelling over the involved ligament or ligaments, 
an anterior drawer test should look for excessive anterior displacement of the talus relative to the tibia, however has limited usefulness in the acute setting. Know that the ATFL is best tested in plantar flexion and the CFL is best tested in dorsal flexion. Finally, in the Taylor tilt test, know that excessive ankle inversion that is greater than 15 degrees compared to the contralateral side indicates injury to the ATFL and CFL. Moving on to imaging, indications for radiographs with an ankle injury include the Ottawa ankle rules, which include inability to bear weight, medial or lateral malleolus point tenderness, fifth metatarsal base tenderness, navicular tenderness, and 96 to 99% sensitivity in ruling out ankle fractures. Radiographic views to obtain include a standard ankle series, which should be weight-bearing, an external rotation stress view, and a virus stress or tailor tilt view. A standard ankle series that is weight-bearing should include an AP, lateral, and a mortise. On the lateral, ATF injury is suggested with anterior tailor translation. As far as the external rotation stress view, this is useful for diagnosis of syndesmosis injury in the setting of a high ankle sprain. Be sure to look for asymmetric mortise widening, medial clear space widening of greater than 4 millimeters, and tibiofibular clear space widening of 6 millimeters. Finally, a varus stress or tailored tilt view is used to diagnose injury to the CFL and measures ankle instability by looking at tailored tilt. An MRI should be considered if pain is persistent for 6 to 8 weeks following a sprain. An MRI is useful to evaluate perineal tendon pathology, osteochondral injury, and syndesmotic injury. Moving on to treatment of ankle sprains, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes rice, that is rest, ice, compression, and elevation, as well as elastic wrap to minimize swelling, followed by therapy. This is indicated for grade 1, 2, and 3 injuries. In terms of initial immobilization, patients may require a short period, defined as approximately one week, of weight-bearing immobilization in a walking boot, air cast, or walking cast, but early mobilization facilitates a better recovery. Know that grade 3 sprains may benefit from 10 days of casting and non-weight-bearing. As far as therapy, the early phase includes early functional rehabilitation that begins with motion exercises and progresses to strengthening, proprioception, and activity-specific exercises. With respect to the strengthening phase, once swelling and pain have subsided and the patient has full range of motion, begin neuromuscular training with a focus on perineal muscle strength and proprioception training. A functional brace that controls inversion and eversion is typically used during the strengthening period and used as a prophylactic treatment during high-risk activities thereafter. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, early functional rehabilitation allows for the quickest return to physical activity. Know that supervised physical therapy has shown a benefit in early follow-up, but no difference in the long term. Operative options include anatomic reconstruction versus tendon transfer with tenodesis, as well as arthroscopy. Indications for anatomic reconstruction versus tendon transfer with tenodesis includes grade 1 through 3 ankle sprains that continue to have pain and instability despite extensive non-operative management. Other indications include grade 1 to 3 ankle sprains with a bony avulsion. As far as arthroscopy, this is indicated in the setting of recurrent ankle sprains and chronic pain caused by impingement lesions, specifically an antero-inferior tibiofibular ligament impingement, posteromedial impingement lesion of the ankle, and is often used prior to reconstruction to evaluate for intraarticular pathology. The procedure will involve debriding the impinging tissue. Now, let's go over some surgical techniques in a bit more detail. We'll go over the Gould modification of the Brostrom anatomic reconstruction, as well as a tendon transfer and tenodesis, specifically the Watson-Jones, Chrisman-Snook, Colville, and Evans. 
So the Gould modification of a Brostrom anatomic reconstruction includes an anatomic shortening and reinsertion of the ATFL and CFL. This is reinforced with an inferior extensor retinaculum and distal fibular periosteum, otherwise known as the Gould modification. As far as results, there are good to excellent results in 90% of patients, and you should consider arthroscopic evaluation prior to reconstruction for intraarticular evaluation. Moving on to a tendon transfer and tenodesis, like a Watson-Jones, Chrisman-Snook, Colville, and Evans procedure, this is a non-anatomic reconstruction using a tendon transfer. As far as the technique, know that any malalignment must be corrected to achieve success during a lateral ligament reconstruction. Coleman block testing is used to distinguish between a fixed and a flexible hind foot varus. As far as results, know that subtalar stiffness is a common complication. Now let's talk about rehabilitation after ankle sprain. As far as return to play, this depends on the grade of sprain, syndesmosis injury, associated injuries, and compliance with rehab. So as far as return to play for grade 1 and grade 2 ankle sprains, this is typically 1 to 2 weeks. Grade 3 is 3 to 4 weeks. A high ankle sprain treated with immobilization is typically 5 to 6 weeks. And in the setting of a high ankle sprain that was treated with screw fixation, these patients will be out for the season. As far as prevention techniques in athletes with prior sprains, this includes a semi-rigid orthosis, everter muscle or perineal strengthening, proprioception exercises, and season-long prevention programs. So in terms of semi-rigid orthoses, patients who demonstrate cavovarus alignment benefit from a brace with a lateral hind foot slash forefoot wedging and a first metatarsal recess. Now let's talk about complications from ankle sprain. The ones to know include pain and instability, as well as stretch neuropraxia. So as far as the incidence of pain and instability, know that up to 30% continue to experience symptoms following an acute ankle sprain. As far as risk factors, the most common cause of chronic pain is a missed injury, including missed fractures, specifically an anterior process of the calcaneus fracture, lateral or posterior process of the talus fracture, or a fifth metatarsal fracture. Other missed injuries can include an osteochondral lesion, injuries to the perineal tendons, injury to the syndesmosis, tarsal coalition, and impingement syndromes. Another potential complication is stretch neuropraxia, which is neuropathic pain in the distribution of the affected nerve. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of an ankle sprain. So in terms of natural history, pain decreases rapidly during the first two weeks after injury. 5 to 33% report some pain at one year, and there's an increased risk of a sprain to the ipsilateral and contralateral ankle after an ankle sprain. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 23-year-old basketball player has a history of recurrent ankle sprains. Conservative treatment has failed and he continues to have pain. On physical examination, he has a symmetric alignment and pain medially. Squeezing his tibia and fibula does not reproduce the pain, but externally rotating the ankle causes pain medially. Standing radiographs, including an external rotation stress examination, are unremarkable. An MRI is obtained and the patient is indicated for surgical reconstruction. Which of the following structures is most likely injured? And the choices are 1. Deltoid ligament complex. 2. Inferior transverse ligament. 3. Anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament. 4. Anterior talofibular ligament. And 5. Spring ligament. The correct answer to this question is 1. Deltoid ligament complex. So with medial ankle pain and unremarkable radiographs, the deltoid ligament is the most likely injured structure. The deltoid ligament is a fan-shaped structure over the medial ankle. It is important for stability against valgus and rotatory forces. 
It contains four superficial and two deep ligaments. The superficial ligaments include the tibiospring ligament, tibionavicular ligament, superficial posterior tibiotalar ligament, and tibiocalcaneal ligament, which cross the ankle and the subtalar joint, whereas the deep components, which includes the deep posterior tibiotalar ligament and the anterior tibiotalar ligament, only cross the ankle joint. The superficial deltoid limits talar abduction, while the deep deltoid limits external rotation. Both are equally effective in limiting pronation of the talus. Nup et al. performed a review of ankle instability. They report that the deltoid ligament is involved in the coupling mechanism between the leg and the foot. This may be seen when sectioning the medial and lateral ligaments. When sectioning the lateral ligaments, this does not affect tibial rotation and foot eversion and inversion. When sectioning the medial ligaments, this greatly alters the physiologic force transmission pattern of the leg to the foot. They conclude that the physiologic gait pattern depends highly on deltoid integrity. Sue et al. performed a review of 14 NFL players who underwent open deltoid ligament repair. Surgical treatment for all patients consisted of ankle arthroscopy and debridement, followed by fibula fixation with plate and screws, syndesmotic fixation with suture button devices, and open deltoid complex repair with suture anchors. They found that all players were able to return to running and cutting maneuvers by six months after surgery. They conclude that this is a viable treatment strategy in high-performance athletes following ankle fractures. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, inferior transverse ligament is incorrect as this is a minor ligament of the syndesmosis, likely not injured due to the normal alignment and normal radiographs. Answer 3, anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament is incorrect as the syndesmosis is likely not injured as the squeeze test and radiographs are normal. Answer 4, anterior talofibular ligament is incorrect, as though the anterior talofibular ligament is the most frequently injured structure with an ankle sprain, the patient usually recovers with conservative management. Finally, answer 5, spring ligament is incorrect, as the spring ligament is a static stabilizer of the medial longitudinal arch, and the patient's normal alignment suggests that this structure is not injured, as injury would present with a flat foot deformity. Moving on to the next question. A 31-year-old female presents with a six-month history of lateral midfoot and ankle pain. She enjoys running and states that the pain is predominantly activity-related. The surgeon suggests to treat her problem with a full-length semi-rigid orthosis with lowered arch support and a lateral wedge. What foot deformity does this patient most likely have? And the choices are 1. Juvenile flat foot deformity 2. Adult acquired flat foot deformity 3. Ankle arthritis 4. Subtle cavovarus foot and five, rigid cavovarus foot. The correct answer to this question is four, subtle cavovarus foot. So a full-length semi-rigid orthosis with arch support and a lateral wedge may be used for the treatment of subtle cavovarus foot. Subtle cavovarus foot is a foot condition that is classically characterized by mid-heel varus and a plantar flex first ray. These anatomic features have the potential to alter gait mechanics, leading to significant lateral foot-slash-ankle pain and disability. The most commonly reported pathologies that are associated with subtle cavovarus foot include lateral column overload, stress fractures, and injury to the perineal tendons and or the lateral ankle ligaments. Childers et al. reviewed subtle cavus foot. They state that the first-line treatment of subtle cavus foot should include custom full-length orthoses with a recess under the first metatarsal head, post at the lateral forefoot, lowered arch, and a heel cushion. In addition, stretching of the plantar fascia and proprioceptive re-education for functional ankle instability have shown to be important adjuncts. Manoli et al. also reviewed subtle cavus foot, which they call the, quote, underpronator. 
during active heel raise in patients with subtle cabovarus foot, the hind foot does not swing from physiologic valgus into varus as the hind foot is raised. Instead, the heel will elevate but not invert through an arc of motion. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, juvenile flat foot deformity is incorrect as this can be treated with observation or custom orthotics with a deep heel cup, medial post, or polypropylene shell orthoses. Answer 2, adult acquired flat foot deformity is incorrect as custom orthotics for adult acquired flat foot deformity include medial arch flange or deep heel seat, heel cups, University of California at Berkeley Laboratory or UCBL orthosis, Arizona brace or AFO, that is an ankle foot orthosis, that will support the entire ankle tarsal complex. Answer 3, ankle arthritis is incorrect, as ankle arthritis can be treated with soft or rigid ankle braces. Some of these can include rocker sole shoes, Arizona brace, custom molded ankle foot orthoses, rigid hind foot orthoses, and articulating hind foot orthoses. Finally, answer 5, rigid cavovarus foot is incorrect, as this may be treated with custom rigid cushion orthotics. However, a rigid deformity is not correctable and the results are often poor. Instead, surgical treatment is often used to treat rigid cavovarus deformities. And moving on to the final question, a 30-year-old high-level athlete sustained a low ankle sprain one week ago. The treatment options of immobilization and functional management are discussed. Which of the following statements is false? And the choices are 1. Functional management is associated with a higher rate of return to sports than immobilization. 2. Functional management is associated with greater range of motion than immobilization. 3. Functional management is associated with less persistent swelling than immobilization. 4. Functional management is associated with a greater risk of increased ankle joint laxity than immobilization. And 5. Functional management is associated with a higher rate of satisfaction than immobilization. The correct answer to this question is 4. Functional management is associated with a greater risk of increased ankle joint laxity than immobilization. So functional management, including early controlled motion, is associated with a lesser risk of increased ankle joint laxity than immobilization. Functional management is the mainstay of treatment for acute lateral ligament injuries. The phases include 1. Rice, that is rest, ice, compress, and elevate. 2. Protection with supportive bandaging, taping, or bracing and three, early active range of motion exercises, proprioceptive training with a tilt board, and peroneous strengthening. Surgery is less commonly performed in the acute setting. One indication includes acute repair of torn ligaments for open ankle dislocation with gross disruption of the lateral ankle ligaments. DG Vani et al. reviewed acute ankle injury and chronic instability in the athlete. Average disability was 8 days for grade 1 injury and 15 days for grade 2 injury. Both grades 1 and 2 respond to functional management. The treatment of grade 3 injuries is not as clear-cut and good results have been obtained with primary repair and non-operative treatment. Mafuli et al. reviewed the management of acute and chronic ankle instability. They found that functional management was associated with 1. a higher percentage of patients returning to sports, 2. shorter time to return to work, 3. less persistent swelling, 4. less risk of increased ankle joint laxity at intermediate follow-up, 5. greater range of motion, and six higher satisfaction rate than those treated with cast immobilization. That's all for this review about ankle sprains. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic.
If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.